One thing I forgot to mention last week, and thankfully it's not terribly consequential, but uh, it is baby time anytime, really, for me and my family. So um, I will do everything I can to make sure that Bible study is uninterrupted. But if the birth of my second son is Thursday or Friday next week, I probably won't be able to do it. So if the Bible study is not here where you expect it to be, uh, check the Bible study page on my website, and I will certainly post a notification as to what's going on and what to expect if, in fact, we have a delay in the study. But hopefully not. Hopefully I won't have to miss. And, um, Robert, you can you and I can talk about it offline, too. I do have someone previously trained to sort of fill in in my role if you wanted to carry on with the study in my absence. That would be an option, too. But we will uh, we will cross the bridge when we get there. We're going to get there very soon. Hopefully it'll be no time off. Anyway. Uh, Garrick asks, is it Tim? Yeah, it is Tim. Tim knows how to do it. Tim knows how to do a lot of the things, but, uh, I trained him way back before he was Tim. Anyway, uh, the Tim that you now know back when he was still dangerous spaces. Anyway, that's a lot of babble about unrelated nonsense. So, uh, without further ado, let's get to Robert and his study, his continued study in Acts. Okay. So let's begin by listening to the scripture. We are in chapter four. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the commander of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, angry because they were teaching the people and announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had listened to the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers, elders, and experts in the law came together in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas. John, Alexander, and others who were members of the high priest's family. After making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, replied, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and discovered that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized these men had been with Jesus. And because they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say against this. But when they had ordered them to go outside the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For it is plain to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable, miraculous sign has come about through them, and we cannot deny it. But to keep this matter from spreading any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And they called them in and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Whether it is right before God to obey you rather than God, you decide. For it is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. For they could not find how to punish them on account of the people because they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this miraculous sign of healing had been performed was over forty years old. When they were released, Peter and John went to their fellow believers and reported everything the high priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, 
they raised their voices to God with one mind and said, Master of all, you who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them, who said by the Holy Spirit through your servant David our forefather, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot foolish things? The kings of the earth stood together, and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Christ. For indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do as much as your power and your plan had decided beforehand would happen. And now, Lord, pay attention to their threats, and grant to your servants to speak your message with great courage while you extend your hand to heal and to bring about miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God courageously. Okay, we are going to stop right there for today. So let's get to the discussion. As an introduction to today, I think this is very important. We need to at least briefly mention the idea of persecution. Now, uh, persecution is a major topic in Acts, but you really see it all throughout the Bible, the the Old and New Testament. Um, and particularly when it comes to the New Testament, it seems like persecution is inseparable from the spreading of the gospel. Um, we we learn about this not only, of course, in the Bible, uh, through writers like Luke and Paul, uh, we also learn from it from non-Christian writers in the ancient world and from early Christian writers like church fathers and so forth. Now, this idea of persecution remains true today, so this is a very relevant topic. Uh, according to an organization called Open Doors, um, which I cannot corroborate their data, I haven't seen it criticized either, so I'm not saying this is unreliable, I just, you know, take it for what it is. Uh, about 360 million Christians today live under intense persecution. That would mean about one out of every seven Christians um, lives in intense persecution. Um, so, again, th this is a very relevant topic, not, not only back then, but it is today as well. Now, we should ask a question that is going to seem almost contradictory with, with what I just said. We should ask... Why wasn't the persecution of Christians in Acts 4 particularly, meaning very early on in the story, more intense and more decisive? Because if you know kind of your Jewish history of that time, you know that there were other essentially revolutionary slash prophets that came about around the time of Jesus, a little bit before him. Um, and their, you know, their followers, their movement, they were completely crushed by the authorities. The Jesus movement did not receive the same treatment. Persecution certainly escalated to horrific levels, but they do essentially catch a bit of a break there early on, like we read in chapter four. And, and that's probably because Jesus and the apostles never spoke of overthrowing the government. You know, they, they were kind of harmless in that regard. Okay. Now, of course, this gives the movement a chance to grow. And then when persecution hits, it's not able to destroy the movement. Um, now, of course, I'm not denying that this is by God's providence, by the way. I'm just trying to speak of it in, in rather like historical terms. Well, 
Another point of background that I think we need for today, and today is going to sound overly political, but not about today's politics, but about the politics back then. I think we should recall that one time that Jesus talks to the Sadducees in the Gospel of Luke, okay? And that that is in the parable of the vineyard. I'm going to to read that briefly because it, like I said, it is important background to what goes on here. These, you know, this is the gospel of Luke. Then he began to tell the people, he's Jesus in this case, this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went on a journey for a long time. When harvest time came, he sent a slave to the tenant so that they would give him his portion of the crop. However, the tenants beat his slave and sent him away empty-handed, so he sent another slave. They beat this one too, treated him outrageously, and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent still a third. They even wounded this one and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my own dear son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to one another, This is the heir. Let's kill him so the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never happen. But Jesus looked straight at them and said, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and the one on whom it falls will be crushed. Then the experts in the law and the chief priests wanted to arrest them that very hour because they realized he had told this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Okay, so notice that the end of what I just read is exactly what Peter says in Acts 4. So th- this will become very, very important. Um, and I misspoke a minute ago. What I meant to say is, the Sadducees are mentioned only once in Luke. I'm going to read that passage here in another minute. Um, but this is this is the main confrontation that Jesus had with the leaders in the Gospel of Luke. So forgive me, I misspoke there. Okay, but clearly then the, the message that Jesus taught was that the religious elite, they may have had a legitimate position and power at one time, but because they exceeded their proper station, they became illegitimate rulers. And at this point, they are stealing, essentially usurping the position of Jesus, the rightful king. Okay, Again, that's that's kind of the background. Another important thing that, that we should understand as we go into this is what is the public perception of the authorities? Essentially, um, the, the people at large, are, are they on the side of the apostles? Are they on the side of the authorities? Kind of what's you know, what's the general feel here? And actually, the criticisms that Jesus had of the elite, of the authorities, they would have been shared by many of the people, particularly those who belong to other Jewish sects. By that, I mean like the Pharisees or the um, uh, the, the Qumran community from, from which we have the scrolls from the Dead Sea and so forth. Why? Because... These these groups of of Jews who were trying to really be religious in a in a good way, they saw the leaders as nothing more or little more than Roman political lackeys. And why would that be? Because that was exactly true. The these rulers really were on the side of Rome, and and just acted as 
um, you know, essentially uh, Roman appointees. Um, of particular note, we need to, we need to understand the the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling council of Jerusalem, and the ruling council came to be almost completely dominated by Roman friendly people, by people who supported Rome, either because they had been appointed from the time of Herod the Great, um, or because Rome had appointed them as priests, which is something that, of course, goes completely against the Old Testament, but it had happened by the time of, of Jesus. The Sadducees were the main group, meaning that the dominant group within the ruling council, within the Sanhedrin. And um, like I said, the Sadducees in the Gospel of Luke, they're only mentioned one time explicitly. They clearly are involved in many of the discussions, but by name, only the one time. And they are those who deny the resurrection. Okay, The, the Sadducees, I think, would be very familiar to us um, in, in the sense that we encounter similar groups today. They claimed to believe in the scriptures, in the Jewish constitution, so to speak, but essentially they denied the scriptures. They denied their very heart and soul. They did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe that God would really follow through with his promises and threats. Um, essentially, they claimed to believe to believe in the scriptures, but then they behave like atheists. Um, a, a similar group today, and I'm sorry if this offends anyone, but it's what nowadays maybe goes by the term of progressive Christians. Um, these are so-called Christians who say, yeah, we believe in the Bible, but actually Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He, he, you know, it's a metaphor, the fact that he, he rose from the dead and there is no heaven and no hell. Those again are, are just metaphors. And essentially the, what they end up doing is to say, yeah, we believe in the Bible, but we also don't believe in anything in the Bible. That is if 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 maybe a little simplistic, a pretty accurate description of the Sadducees. So um, those are the the powers that be. This is important to frame the conf to the conflict here. Sometimes uh, modern readers, particularly Christians today, read something like Acts chapter four, and they think that this is a conflict between Christians and Jews. That is not the case at all. These are two groups that are claiming to be essentially the rightful leaders of the people. Now, the, the apostles are claiming they are the leaders because they have the truth. The Sadducees are claiming they're the leaders because they have the power, right? They have the power of Rome. Um, and so this is a conflict of truth versus power, which again, I think that we can relate to that uh, nowadays. One last question before we get into the text, is what would Luke make up this idea of persecution? Okay, This doesn't seem so odd to us today. Uh, you know, is Luke trying to portray the apostles as overly courageous? Is he going after those victimhood points that so many people today go after? And really, the answer is probably not. Luke has no reason to make this up because if he really wanted the Christian mo movement to grow, it would be more beneficial to make up the fact that the establishment really supported Christians, really liked Christians. Keep in mind that the Romans already did not favor the Jews because the Jews stuck to their odd ways 
and they attempted, and sometimes were successful, in converting Romans. So there was already this stigma against Jews. Why now portray the Christian movement as a Jewish movement that is even disliked by the Jewish authority? Um, so again, there's there's very little reason to believe that Luke is making any of this up or exaggerating it in any way. It does not help his apologetics. Now, that is the background. And forgive me if that was a little lengthy, but chapters four and five are very similar. So this introduction will help us for, for next session as well. So next time we can just get to the text much, much faster. Okay. Well, remember that in, in chapter three, uh, you know, Peter is calling people to repentance and then Chapter 4 opens up, and the apostles are arrested by the priests, the commander of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. So let's discuss these groups very briefly. The priests, that's rather obvious. They're the priests at the temple. Um, now, most of the priests were Sadducees, which, mind you, that doesn't really make sense, right? The priests themselves didn't really believe the scriptures. And I'm ashamed to say that, that that happens in the church today, but that's a topic for another day. Um, the commander of the temple guard was really the second in command. You had the high priest, and then you had the commander of the temple guard. His main job was to keep the peace in the temple, uh, but really, he was a very, very powerful figure. Uh, we have at least one instance in which the commander of the temple guard became the high priest. Okay, so again, this very important political appointment. Um, then the Sadducees, um, I already mentioned, so I'm not going to discuss them again, but they were the dominant group, right, in the assembly. And um, they were probably, you know, very kind of well-to-do people, uh, probably many of them landowners, politically connected, and on uh, the side of Rome. Now, they the Sadducees sometimes had to go along with the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were very, very religious, and they even came up with additional rules to be like extra religious. And I know that I'm putting that very colloquially, but for the sake of time, I'm going to go with it. The Sadducees sometimes had to, to play along with the Pharisees because the people liked the Pharisees much more than they liked the Sadducees, who were viewed essentially as traitors. Um, so, again, you, you, there's, there's these dynamics going on. Well, Peter um, is arrested. And the, um, the, like I said, this, this comes right after Peter is saying, hey, every person who does not obey the prophet, which is something I didn't get to discuss last time, but that is quoting... Uh, Moses, who was teaching about this prophet that people should should obey. So Peter says, hey, whoever does not obey, quote-unquote, the prophet will be destroyed and is removed from the people. And, um, and, and then Peter's doing these things in Jesus' name. This clearly was not okay with the authorities, so they are arrested. Now, is the arrest about teaching about the resurrection? No, not really, because the, the Pharisees taught about the resurrection, and we have no records that the Sadducees were oppressing the Pharisees in any way. So it had to be a little more than that. And what is that little more? Well, the name of Jesus, right? Because remember, this is the man that the Sadducees tortured and killed. This is the same Jesus who claimed to be the true owner of the vineyard. 
or to put it in political terms, the guy who is claiming to be the legitimate priestly authority of the Jews, right? By preaching Jesus, the apostles are publicly dishonoring the ruling class. And in the society, honor was of paramount importance, so much more than, than we can, I think, even comprehend today, uh, much more akin to some Eastern cultures of, of nowadays, like the Japanese or even the Chinese. Um, they're arrested, they're jailed for the night. This was in keeping with standard procedure in the ancient world. In fact, all evidence that we have from the ancient world says that they would not have trials at night. They would have done it during the day. Uh, that's actually part of the reason that the trial of Jesus is so unusual, but we discussed that when we studied John, so I'll leave that. Well, but notice that this arrest does not dissuade uh, believers. We read that the number of believers came up to 5,000. We could interpret this in two ways. We could think that uh, 5,000 people came to Christ that day, or we could we could interpret it like the total number of believers, including those from Pentecost, came to 5,000. The latter interpretation is more likely given the population of Jerusalem at the time. Um, otherwise, we would we would end up believing that, uh, you know, like 20% of the population of Jerusalem converted, which is not impossible. It's just unlikely. It seems like then historical events would have developed a little differently. Now, uh, this kind of persecution was predicted by Jesus. I put a, a quote in the blog if you, if you want to read it, but this certainly was expected. Yeah. Then the day comes and they have the trial. And it's a different set of uh, of people that are mentioned for the, the trial. Again, I'll go through this kind of quickly, but it's important that we understand who we're dealing with. We are told that the rulers, the elders, and the experts in the law, which oftentimes the word there is scribes, they have joined together. Now, these, these are exactly the, the group of people who made up the Sanhedrin, the council. So, I mean, this is exactly what we expect. Rulers could refer to like temple administrators, but it probably refers to priests that had some level of authority. Uh, experts in the law or scribes are um, people who, who could read and write and to such a level that it, they could even draft legal documents. Sometimes we assume in, in modern day, I mean, that experts in the law were Pharisees. That is a mistake. Certainly some of them would have been Pharisees, uh, but many of them would not have been. Uh, and they probably would have been Sadducees. If not, they would have been priests who probably had more financial means to reach that level of education. Now, uh, like I said, the Sanhedrin is the council. This is... Um, this was common in the ancient world. Cities had their own senates, and that's exactly what this is. Um, according to rabbinic ideals, and probably with the fair, you know, judges who who performed outstandingly, they they eventually became part of this ruling council. But in reality, we know that they were mostly political appointments. You know, they were the elite aristocracy and wealthy landowners in the area. Um, this council exerted. Uh, power over all of Israel, not just the city. That that was not technically supposed to be the case, but just like the center of Rome exerted power over all the empire. You know, the same happened in Israel. Um, these councils could be used by leaders to escape responsibility 
because decisions were made as a group. So if a certain politician wanted to do something unpopular, they could have the council vote on it. So then it wasn't any one person's fault. Again, it just feels like the world has never changed. Things have always been uh, how they are now. Um, the high priest is the one who presided. The high priest was the most powerful person from Israel. And I say that because the Roman ruler who would have been appointed to that area would actually be higher ranking, right? That guy could could even appoint the uh, the high priest. Um, there's a, a little kind of historical nuance here that I discussed when we studied John, so I'm going to mention this briefly. But if if you notice in the text, the the use high priest is used in the plural, like there's several, and there's two people who are named, um, Annas and Caiaphas. And sometimes people will say, hey, Luke got this wrong because there was only one high priest. Like if you, if you read the Old Testament, clearly there's only one high priest. Yes, that is how it was supposed to work. But by this point in time, that's not how things were working. Caiaphas was officially the high priest, but Annas was the was the higher ranking member in the family who was truly ruling through Caiaphas, right? Um, again, this even happens today. This is not really all that unusual. But just just in case you think, oh, Robert, that you know that doesn't sound right. Even uh, the the Jewish historian. Um, Oh my goodness, his name just left my brain for a second. Uh, Josephus. Uh, he used the phrase in plural, high priest. Everybody seemed to be aware of how this worked now. It wasn't so religious as it was political. Okay, so let's get to the trial itself. Peter and John stand in the midst of the assembly. Uh, this makes sense because the Sanhedrin, at least by tradition, they would meet in a semicircle. So they're probably standing in the middle. And the authorities begin the trial with the most important question of the day. By what power or by what name did you do this, right? Did you heal this guy? And that goes back to chapter three. Now, name in this question clearly implies authority. By whose authority have you done this? Now, notice that this is the exact question that Peter addresses again and again and again in chapter three. He keeps clarifying, we are doing this in the name of Jesus by the authority of Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Um, so everybody seems to understand this is the key issue, right? And then uh, Peter responds, but but before he does that, we get this little phrase in there that it says, having, sorry, having been filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that... Well, our, our translation just simplifies it and just says filled with the Holy Spirit. But if you look at the Greek, it, it is the aorist passive participle tense, um, which more naturally implies something that happened in the past, but it could actually mean something that essentially just happened. So it's a little bit unclear if Peter is just filled with the Holy Spirit or if something happened again in this particular instance. Essentially, he received like fresh power and inspiration. Grammar is probably not sufficient to settle that debate. You would have to look at other passages and you can make up uh, your mind on that particular issue. Now, this idea that, that Peter was filled with the Spirit, he was inspired by God, and so he spoke boldly to the authorities, 
this is something that would have been common to to Jews because it happens in the Old Testament. I gave a couple of of quotations in the blog just for the sake of time. I'm not going to read them. Um, But again, this idea is very biblical. Well, Peter, you know, goes to to begin his response. He does begin quite respectfully, right? He he says, rulers of the people and elders. Uh, in rhetoric, this would be the captatio benevolentiae. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a common technique to start by engracing yourself with the audience. But immediately, uh, Peter's speech or response takes a, a different turn because then he uses very, very heavy sarcasm, right? Essentially, what he says to the authorities is, hey, are we being detained for being for doing a good deed? Literally, what in Greek would have been an act of kindness? Or, or perhaps are you detaining us because this man was healed? Now, um, we'll come back to this, but that word healed, it's semantic range. It includes the idea of being uh, delivered or saved. That will be key to the argument later, so just keep that in mind. But, right, Peter's saying, I guess you're you're arresting us because we've done something good. This is both a defense and an offense, right? The defense is, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. But it's also offense because, again, in this ancient culture, based on honor, if you did something good, if you did a benefaction, what was expected was gratitude. And somebody who was ungrateful would have been viewed quite negatively. And somebody who actually harmed a benefactor would have been considered grossly wicked. That is the accusation being made here. Hey, did you arrest us for doing something good? In other words, are you a really evil person? <laughs> That's what's implied in there. Then Peter kind of reloads when, when he uses the phrase, let it be known to you. This phrase... Again, it rhetorically is clearly introducing a shocking statement, right? Something really shocking is about to happen or about to be said. We should notice how bold, how unusual this is. Now, certainly, you know, in in Greek debates, to be bold like this was not unusual. But when speaking to your judges, this was highly unusual. Most people would have tried to be uh, positive and essentially to cave to the authorities to be able to obtain a more favorable ruling. But Peter does none of that. I mean, Peter just comes out swinging and just d- doesn't stop. Now, what is this shocking statement that Peter makes after that phrase, you know, um, saying, let it be known to you? He says, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healthy. Okay, this is a stabbing and a twisting of the knife. Peter holds nothing back. You killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead, which remember how that always gets used. The idea of God raising Jesus from the dead validates Jesus. It's like, so Jesus really was the guy he said he was. He is the one anointed by God. God is on his side, not on your side, right? And it is by the power, by the name of Jesus Christ, that this man, the the paralytic, the the lame man, he stands before you healthy. And if you notice, uh, in verse 
I think it was 14. I could be wrong on that. It it explicitly says that the healed man was there, was standing there, right? So like the proof is right there. And then Peter goes a step further and then uses prophecy. And again, notice this is the exact same Old Testament verse that Jesus used in the parable of the vineyard. Um, he says, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Now, those words by you, they're not actually in the Old Testament. That, that is Peter inserting a little explanation, making it clear, you guys are these people. The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. Okay. Um, and so, again, it, Peter is bolstering his case with the Old Testament, like he has done essentially in every chapter that we have read. This is a quotation from Psalm 118, 22. Um, in fact, Peter is, is more direct than, than Jesus. Jesus implied the identity of the builders who rejected the stone. Peter outright says it. It's you. You're the bad guy. Uh, what is a um, what is this stone? This cornerstone? It can be taken in two ways. It can be taken as a cornerstone or a topstone, which the other word people use is capstone. Now, um, a cornerstone would have been one of the initial stones that you place that you build upon. Um, a capstone would have been the last stone that you place, and. Uh, scholars kind of debate, but I think that our Bible translation has a very helpful note on this. Essentially, they say interpreting this word as capstone is, is rather hard because whenever this word is used in Ephesians, in Corinthians, um, it very clearly means cornerstone. So it's the better translation is probably cornerstone. But you again, you can make up your mind on that. Now, finally, Peter ends his argument with a twist because he says that it is only through Jesus, right? That there is deliverance or salvation. And the word he uses there, it, it comes from the same root. It's not technically the identical word, but it's an almost identical word to the, to the word used in, in healing and to say the lame man was healed. Um, so essentially he's arguing from a smaller thing to a bigger thing which was a standard Midrashic argument, right? Say, look, the lame man was delivered through Christ, and by that he's meaning physically healed, and it is through Christ that you can be delivered or saved, hinting towards a greater concept of salvation. Um, Peter also makes it clear that there's no other name, quote, under heaven, through which this deliverance or salvation can be attained, um, notice that, that Peter makes, makes or leaves little room uh, to say that there's salvation through someone other than Christ. Um, many Christians and non-Christians today will, will deny this, that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. But I think when you read the text, it just doesn't allow for that conclusion. Now, we can be kind of expansive on how exactly people are saved through Christ. Do they really need to know the name of Christ uh, do they need to believe certain things? Essentially, you can make that that group bigger or smaller, um, but the fact that they would be saved through Christ one way or another, again, to me, it just seems not not up for debate. And if you think I'm being unfair, um, you're more than welcome to push back. 
Well, um, the authorities are taken aback, right, by this speech that that Peter gives. And uh, and by the way, I'll finish here in just a few minutes. I'm, I'm clearly not going to go through the whole block today, but that is okay. Um, they are so taken aback because they go, hey, these are uneducated and ordinary men. Now, I think, again, we need to understand these terms. There's so much kind of cultural stuff that is going on that if we don't stop, we, we won't really understand what's going on here. Uneducated technically uh, means illiterate. Like if you take that word literally, it means illiterate. Um, but it was often used to describe people who had some training. Maybe they could recite the Torah. Maybe maybe they could read at a basic level, but they didn't have formal education. So the translation uneducated, it, it probably is a better translation than, than saying illiterate. And keep in mind in this context, the apostles are, are being faced by the scribes. So it really highlights the difference. Like you have the very uh, formally educated elite against these, you know, country bumpkins. And, and that's actually exactly what the word ordinary means. Um, it th That word, again, it technically means somebody who lacks training in something like rhetoric or philosophy, but in the Jewish culture, because they borrowed that word from the Hellenistic world they were in, it just came to mean common people, right? So it's like, what's up with these, you know, common, uneducated guys that they, they're speaking like this to us? A, a very neat little Easter egg, if you want to call it that, in the text is that they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. Now, we should recall the last time that Peter was recognized as having uh, been with Jesus was when Peter denied Jesus three times and let him die alone. So this scene works as a sort of redemption, right? Peter now is being recognized as, as being with Jesus, and he's not denying it. He's speaking boldly to the authorities, something he could not do before. And I think it speaks to the impact of having uh, received the Holy Spirit. Um, but ultimately, the authorities are just silenced by the facts. The, the miracle is undeniable. You know, there's a lame man from birth uh, who's now 40 years old uh, or about that age who is standing right there. So what will they do? And I'm going to cover this this next section and then I'll, I'll stop for comments or whatever. But um, they need to save face. Right? The authorities have a really, they, they are in a tough spot. On, on one hand, they cannot let the apostles have the last word because that would bring shame upon them. But at the same time, they cannot antagonize the people who just witnessed this miracle that seems utterly undeniable. Essentially, they cannot be seen as people who punished benefactors, punished people who did something kind and amazing. Um, so... What is their answer? It's actually quite a good answer from a political standpoint. I'm not saying morally, just politically speaking. They say, we're going to give them a warning. Why? Because the ability to give somebody a warning establishes your power, right? If you can say, hey, don't do this or else, it establishes I am the leader. I am the power uh, you know, figure in this dynamic. But at the same time, they don't have to follow through and actually punish the apostles. Now, I... 
I think something that is very noteworthy is the fact that the authorities don't seem to question their own position. Uh, they can't deny the miracle, but at the same time, they refuse to consider its implications. Um, I think Luke here is hinting towards political corruption and hardness of heart among the elite. Um, and particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus applying a text from Isaiah to, to, to describe very much the situation when, when he says, um, you will listen carefully, yet will never understand. You will look closely, yet will never comprehend. For the heart of this people has become dull. They are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes so that they would not see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them, right? If these people would just turn, Jesus would accept them, would deliver them. Remember that word healing, deliver them, but they won't. Uh, their, their hearts are just too hard. Um, now, um, given the time or Matt, do you mind if I go for another like four minutes or whatever, I'll, I'll, I just want to wrap this up real quick. It's your study, man. I'm, I'm not going to invite you. Um, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I hate to take time from the discussion, so I, I'm just going to say this very briefly, and if you guys want to read it, um, that that's that's great. But the authorities essentially say, well, not essentially, they outright say, do not speak in Jesus' name anymore. That is to say, do not act as his representatives, do not act under his authority and what is the response that they get? Um, they say, look, we we can't do that. Um, we are unable to not speak about what we have seen and we have heard. And the word inability is used twice in this chapter. And the, and the contrast between the two uses is shocking because the apostles are saying we are unable to not share what we have seen and heard. And the authorities are unable to deny the miracle. So actually, they, it's a similar inability in that sense. And yet, the authorities are also unable to think about the implications. Well, um, we see that the apostles essentially rebel or uh, disobey is the, the word that I mean to use. So I'm going to leave you guys with one closing thought, which is, should we be like Peter in regards to disobeying the authorities. And if we focus on the writings of, of Luke, right, because I'm focusing on what we're reading, um, it, you would go to probably two places. You would go to Luke 20, when Jesus is asked, hey, should we pay taxes to the Romans, uh, particularly to Caesar? And Jesus says, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. They said, Caesar's. So he said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And however you take that comment, clearly then there is a, a legitimate sphere for government and we ought to obey government within that sphere. But then here in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter asked this question essentially, is it right before God to obey the authorities rather than God? And Peter, both in word and deed, answers no. If it comes to obeying the authorities or God, then um, God comes first. Put broadly, we could say the principle is that we should obey the government unless doing so is directly contrary to obeying God. Um, but I will also admit that in practice, applying that principle can be rather challenging. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Matt. Sure. Uh if anybody would like to participate in the conversation, as usual, just write the word question in the chat and I will bring it in. 
and you can offer whatever uh, thought or question you have for discussion. Uh, in the interest of being brief, I'm just going to ask about a point of fact, and I'm sure you made this distinction somewhere. I think I just missed it. But can you explain to me the difference between the Pharisees and the the other guys I, with the word that I don't know how to pronounce? Oh, yeah. The so Sadducees the, or whatever, whoever. The, what's the difference between those groups? Okay, so the Pharisees were intensely religious. And in fact, they were so concerned that no biblical command was violated that they would create other rules, essentially as safeties. So like, to say the Sabbath, they didn't want anybody breaking the Sabbath. So they would say, hey, on the Sabbath, you can only walk half a mile. And now that's not really in the Bible, but it's a good way of preventing people to even come close to to breaking the Sabbath, right? So they were very intensely religious, but they had also become quite hypocritical. And Jesus has many, uh, you know, much to say about them because of that. The Sadducees were kind of the exact opposite. They were really political powers. They were very friendly to the Romans and the Pharisees were not, of course. Um, and they say, they, they said they believed in the scriptures in the Old Testament, but at the same time, they denied that, you know, uh, there would be a judgment that that God would really act in history, that there would be a resurrection of the dead. So, yeah, they believed in the scriptures, but really they used them for their political, as a political weapon. Are they part of the same Jewish hierarchy or are they entire? I suppose, like, should I consider them to be something like Catholics and Protestants where they're distinct or are they part of this? Well, I don't know. Can you give me a metaphor for the relationship between the two? How should I think of them? So they were both represented in the ruling council, but the Sadducees were definitely the majority. They had the the vast majority of the political power, but the Pharisees were more liked by the people. So the Sadducees hmm. had to play along with the Pharisees to avoid, um, you know, uh, opposition by the people. This would be more like, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Let, Let's open it up to other questions for a second. I will come up with a, uh, I'm trying to think of a good modern example of this. Really the best one that I can think of is uh, progressive Christians and uh, like, you know, real Christians. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, in other news, I just got a text that this is happening. So um, <laughs> tonight's the night, but I'm going to hang out for the next, I'm going to hang out for 12 minutes and then, then we'll go to the hospital. So uh, uh, generally specific, you're up first. Yeah, I don't really see the beef. Uh, it's kind of a comic soft question. Um, Your mic sounded really funny me. to me, really muffled. Oh, maybe there it goes. Test, test, test. Uh, something, something's gone haywire with it. It's a little, but, maybe yeah, unplug it, plug it back in type thing. Uh, go to the next person. Okay, yeah, we'll come back to you. Uh, Chris, go ahead. Hey, first of all, congrats, Matt. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. Breaking news. That's exciting. That's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Robert, I have, a, I have a question. And um, first of all, you never have to apologize. I think you're very fair and, and you cover all the bases. And But uh, my question has, and you might have already covered uh, this, and I think this, this dovetails into what Matt was asking regarding the Sadducees. So one of the things that has always puzzled me, and I think you, I think you shed some light on this tonight, but I, I want to go ahead and ask the question. Uh, to me, I've always wondered, what was in like, like if I didn't believe it was real, if I didn't believe there was something on the other side of it, why bother? 
You know, I mean, and there's there are churches like that today. I could name one. I won't. But I mean, I could name one a, a denomination that basically just thinks everybody's going to heaven. And it's kind of the same thing. The Sadducees, uh, they believed, obviously, in no afterlife and, and, and whatnot. I'm like, why? Why, why even why even bother? You know, I don't I don't get it. But that's it. That's my question. Thank you. Um, I share your thoughts. Now, in the case of the Sadducees, um, I, I think very clearly their motivation was political power. They were the religious elite um, of the Jews. And so if they completely denied the scriptures, they would cre- they would delegitimize their own position. So it was better to say that they, yes, they totally claimed to believe in the Old Testament, even if they, in a sense, really didn't. Um, so they had that motivation. Uh, it's like we hear politicians today claim that they totally believe in the Constitution, but then they don't. Um, but with in the case of Christians today who say they're Christians, but they deny pretty much everything in the Bible, I I share your thoughts. I I I can hardly put myself in their frame of mind. <laughs> no, I'll leave it there. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Uh, generally specific, do you want to try again? You also well, give it a shot. How yeah, we sound much, much better. There you go. Okay, thank you for pointing that out. So, son, you said as always, you, you trigger something in my head. So, you, you talked about that the rock. Now that there's a hymn called the Rock of Ages. Now it's interesting that Jesus was that cornerstone, that capstone, that that the key, right? And the Georgia Guidestones is something I I did a video on on my channel about four years ago, and it recently got blown up about a year ago, I think, if I'm my math's kind of correct. Um, everything's kind of a blur, but quickly they, they've got like 10 things that are written on this Georgia Guidestones. If you're not familiar with it, I highly recommend you give it a peek. 10 things, kind of like the 10 commandments. It's written on stone. Uh, one of the things that maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature, which means about 7.5 billion people need to perish. Now that goes exactly against what God says to go forth, be fruitful, multiply, guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. That's kind of Bill Gates, you know, helping us out, you know, like, uh, unite humanity uh, with a living language, living new language. This is all Tower of Babel, and that's ones and zeros. The new Tower of Babel is the internet. It's ones and zeros, binary. Okay. So again, and you can you can read the rest of these for yourself because I'm not going to keep. Congratulations, Daddy Times too. That's awesome, man. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, your thoughts on that, and really look into that, um, and really. Because this is all counter to what, and it's it's interesting because from what, what the research I had done at the time, it was missing a corner piece, which was supposed to have the date on, there was supposed to be something buried like a time capsule. And it was missing this one piece to it. Now do some research on it. So it's interesting. It's missing Jesus. Because everything that this is telling you to do sounds great, right? But it's got minus, it's sans God, right? Without God. All right. Thanks for your thoughts, Robert. Uh, do you have a response to that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that, um, you know, if we try to take religion, and I, yeah, I'm just going to be outright Christian. I mean, I am a Christian. Like, if we try to take religion but take Jesus out of it, I do think that the wheels come off and we end up in terrible places. So I'll just say that. Greg, you're set to go if you're ready. Yes. Um, I guess first, can I say a quick prayer for you, Matt, your family? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to happy to hear it. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I just ask your Holy Spirit and, and your peace would come upon Matt's wife and his and his child and that you would be there for protection and just deliver a healthy baby and happiness uh, with his family. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. 
Thank you. And then I did have just a question, I guess. Um, I guess I would ask you, Matt, or anybody else here that's maybe not a believer is, is learning more about this. Does, does all this in Acts and what we read in John, I mean, does it come across to you as like these things, believing that these really happened and, and from what the, the stories are or? I guess maybe what's impacted you the most from these. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I can give you like a, a declaration heard. like that, but I can tell you that the curiosity remains in me. And I think that there's a reason why I want to continue devoting an hour's worth of time or, you know, however much time each week to learning more about this. And, and so um, to be honest, like a lot of it is, is of such depth and detail that it's, it's hard for me to follow as a matter of fact, sometimes even like tonight, just like the distinction between groups of people and things like that. Um, so is there some declaration of faith that I'm prepared to make or something like that? Not necessarily, but I, I do believe there's a reason why I'm here. And if I, if I came here each and every week and thought like, well, that, that was a bunch of worthless garbage that <laughs> offered no value to my life. Like I wouldn't be doing it, you know? And so it's, it's one of those things like um, on the stream, I'll talk about how like for whatever reason, there are points in my life where I feel like there is some sort of force in the universe that compels me to act or behave in a certain way. And this Bible study, I think is one of those things. Like this is not one. I never really sat down and decided for myself necessarily like I want to do this. I have to do this myself. It was sort of the, uh, a, a combination or convergence of factors where Robert had his old Bible study. This is something that I've been thinking about more and more. And so our paths just crossed in, in just the right way pursuant to that interest. And I think stuff like that happens for a reason. And I think I'm supposed to be doing this, even though like that major moment, I don't think has happened for me. I, sometimes I wonder if that's how it's, if, if that's how it's going to be though. Like, when I think about politically how my mind changed in so many different ways, I never really think like, Oh, it was at that point in time. Like it was that day when someone presented this thing to me that I just suddenly became clear on everything else. It's sort of one of those slow things where it's like over time you sort of realize like, yeah, I guess, I guess I do think that, or I guess I do believe that, you know? Um, I know that may not be satisfying for some, some who want me to have like this moment, this epiphany moment, but I, I know I'm supposed to be on this trajectory. And I think, um, I think that's for a reason. And I think eventually I'm going to look back at everywhere. I'm going to look back at the path I've taken to get here and realize like, okay, yeah, there are a lot of significant differences from, from the start. Does that kind of answer your question? I know it might be a little broader than maybe you were getting at, but yeah, I, I guess, one one thing is is does the story the, do the accounts come across to you as plausible and not like oh. you know some people would say oh they're just made up or whatever well I mean t- to I be mean, honest like stories of miracles and supernatural events are a little bit of a hurdle for me I mean I, d- just to be honest like it's hard for me to imagine the breaking of the the forces of the universe as we understand them that said I do believe that the forces of the universe have some sort of author and if they have some sort of author you know they must there must be some ability to bend them or break them when necessary or in, I don't know. It's a hurdle for me, but it's not, it's, it's not implausible in the sense that believing all the rules of the universe, like what's implausible to me is believing all the rules of the universe are simply random and have no meaning. And, um, and you know, who, who really knows? Cause they came from nothing. Like that's, what's implausible to me. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, hurdle, yes. Impossible to believe, no. That's what I would say. That's what I would say. All right. Thanks for uh, thanks for the number one, the prayer, and and for the thoughts as well. Um, thank you, Robert. Did you have any response to any of that? No, no. Thank you. Um, yeah, for for the prayer, Greg, and for that question, and thank you, Matt, for that candid response. Sure. Uh, let's see. Uh, Denby's up next, right? Go ahead, Denby. Um, yeah, well, just, uh, first, uh, Matt, I'm, I appreciate your, your, you know, your, your view, your view on this. And, you know, it's like, um, I, I feel the same way. Like the, it's, it's hard to say, um, at exactly what point I got where I am now, like, or what, what really like was the, the first big step because there's so many things I could point to like where place, you know, times where I was not where I am now, but it was leading to where I am now. And so I can appreciate that. It's, it's not, and it, it's, it's, it's different for everyone. Like, it, um, like there's all kinds of um, different uh, like philosophical arguments for God and, you know, like, why you should believe these things and so on. And, and um, yeah, I think that's where I'm hung up to a little bit. It's like, it's not that I can't picture myself believing it's that anything I believe I have to be able to explain to myself and others why, and the why is like, it's, it's muddy. It's not, um, Mm -hmm. it's not a no, it's not a complete blockage. It's not like a rejection. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to look at a a photo or a picture that's sort of out of focus at the moment. Maybe you need to focus it a little bit more and keep investigating. I feel like that's Mm -hmm. where I am. It's kind of halfway through that process. We're like, to me, the declaration of like, uh, I am a Christian. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and savior carries with it a burden of explanation as to why it's a very serious declaration. It's not Mm -hmm. just like a casual thing I throw around for fun. Um, and so if I'm going to get there, it's like, I got to know exactly why I got to be able to tell myself and others why. And I don't feel like I have that completely nailed down. Well, that's, that's probably a bad uh, choice of words, but you know, uh, <laughs> I don't feel like I have that totally set for myself yet, though I'm searching for it. Yeah. Well, what I would just say about that is like, well, just for like, for example, for me, um, one of the big stumbling blocks for, for me was why, well, I'm uh, I'm from an Anglican background. I guess I'm still an Anglican. I don't know. I'm sort of concerned about where they're going. Yeah. You know, uh, this is I'm, I'm in Canada, by the way. So it's like there is no like conservative Anglican. I was going to say they still well, allow Christianity there. I'm, <laughs> I'm surprised. Uh, yeah, just barely. Yeah. Just barely. I mean, you know, if I, I you know, I'd probably get in trouble if I you know, did yeah. a video, you know, with, like a you know some yeah. government person maybe anyway yeah. uh you know like so it's like the major stumbling block for me when i was growing up was like um there's all this talk about metaphor and you know like it wasn't like denying the bible but it was sort of like yeah yeah I, like it, it's you know yeah it's all great to talk about like you know dying to sin and being raised again to you know like but like did Jesus really rate, you know, rise from the dead? Like why, like what, what can you tell me like to, 
but you consider like good evidence for that. And I, I never got a satisfactory answer. And it wasn't just the Anglicans. Like I couldn't get anyone to give me an answer to that. You know, that was satisfying. It wasn't until I came across uh, across a, a man named uh, Gary Habermas, who I'm sure Robert is quite familiar with, and a lot of people listening would be. And he has something called the minimal facts argument for the resurrection. That is to say, it's an argument where uh, every aspect of what he, uh, in his argument, is accepted by all scholars, whether they're atheists, whether they're Muslims, Jewish, or Christian, or, you know, whatever. But they, they all say, yeah, we, we cannot argue with any of the facts that you have in, you, that you're using to make your argument. And that really helped me. It was like the first time where you know, I, I heard like an argument that I thought was like coherent. It covered all the facts, uh, you know, like to, to anyone's satisfaction. Um, you know, but there are, there are people who don't find that particular argument, especially persuasive, you know, hmm. and it's not because it's not a good argument. It's just, you know, it, like may, maybe one of the reasons it was it was it was effective to me was I I grew up in a Christian home, and the one of the problems I had was kind of what I seemed like a bit of a wishy washiness to to the liberal you know version of Christianity that I grew up in, you know, and there are lots of good things about it like it, it you know I I never got you know scolded for asking questions for example. But, you know, I also never got the answers I was looking for. Hmm. Uh, Robert, uh, do you have any thoughts on on some of those thoughts? Um, Habermas is excellent. Um, I, I, I will make a slight correction to Demby, but I know this is what he meant. Uh, the, the minimum facts argument, uh, the premises, they're not accepted by every single scholar, but by the vast majority of them which I know is a very slight difference, but I, I just, whatever, uh, you know. Uh, so sorry, Denby, I'm not trying to like... Denby gets a rebuttal. He's been called out. <laughs> I, um, I will have to be brief here because I'm getting knocks at my door. So I think uh, okay. <laughs> I think things are getting a little more urgent. Uh, but Denby, if you wanted a, a response, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, no. I, I, it's nev- Nothing is ever accepted by any, any everyone. Like there, are, but, you know, like I think, People who are respected, like generally yeah. respected, most of them, like they 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 consider it a, a you know a really solid argument. Even some famous atheists have said that it is. Mm-hmm. All know, right, not well, I got scholars, I got texted. Just, yeah. I'm in labor, Lameo. So uh, <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's time for me to go. Uh, but hey, um, I don't think I mixed. I don't think I missed anybody here. If I did, I'm sorry. I will have to call it there. Uh, but of course, um, unless something goes crazy wrong, I expect to be back here next Friday night and uh, we'll have the Bible study as usual and as planned. So thanks everybody for joining. Of course, I see everybody's well wishing in the chat and I appreciate that very much as well. Um, as a reminder, if you missed any part of the study, you can head on over to the Bible study page of the website. We have the, all of the studies uh, listenable on demand over there as well as Bible uh, Bible study, Robert. Robert I'm just bad. Robert's Bible study blog posts available if you'd like to catch up on the study there as well. Other than that, um, of course, we'll be back next Friday, 9 Eastern. Thanks for joining. Hope to see you then. And uh, I hope I have good news to bring you then. Have a great night and a great week. Congratulations. Thank you.